You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. My guest today is Scott Rosenberg. His new book is Dreaming in Code. We're going to begin with two readings from his book. Here's the first reading. Maybe you noticed that I've called this Chapter Zero. I do not mean to make an eccentric joke, but rather to tip my hat to one small difference between computer programmers and the rest of us. Programmers count from zero, not from one. The full explanation for this habit lies in the esoteric realm of the design of the registers inside a computer's central processing unit and the structure of data arrays. But the most forthright explanation I've found comes from a web page that attempts to explain for the rest of us the ways of the hacker. Hacker in the word's original sense of obsessive programming tinkerer rather than the later tabloid sense of digital break-in artist. Why do programmers count from zero? Because computers count from zero. And so programmers train themselves to count that way too, to avoid a misunderstanding between them and the machines they must instruct, which is all fine, except for the distressing fact that most of the human beings who use those machines habitually count from one. And so, down in the guts of the system, where data is stored and manipulated, representations of our money and our work lives and our imaginative creations all translated into machine-readable symbols, computer programs and programming languages often include little offsets, translations of plus one or minus one, to make sure that the list of stuff the computer is counting from zero stays in sync with the list of stuff a human user is counting from one. In the binary digital world of computers, all information is reduced to sequences of zeros and ones. But there is a space between zero and one, between the way the machine counts and thinks and the way we count and think. When you search for explanations for software's bugs and delays and stubborn resistance to human desires, that space is where you'll find them. And here is the second reading, Scott Rosenberg reading from Dreaming in Code. It's a Monday afternoon, late in June 2004. Chow Lam and Lisa Dussault step into Mitch Capor's sunlight-flooded office and sit down around a small round table near the door. Capor joins them. Their agenda? Planning for Canoga, the eventual 1.0 release of Chandler, which still seems like a distant peak to scale. Recently, the managers and developers at OSAF have been experiencing another Groundhog Day repeat. They poked their heads up from their monitors, looked around, and realized that four months had passed since the release of Chandler 0.3, so there was no way they were going to release 0.4 in the three or four months allotted by their schedule. Now Kapor, Lamb, and Dussault are assessing what this latest slippage means for their long-term plans. Are we feature-driven or schedule-driven? asks Dussault. It has to be a little bit of both, Lamb says. In the real world, it's always some of both, Kapor agrees. It's pathological if it's all one or the other. Our plan is that the feature side is dominant. Of course, we'll trim and adjust in iterative fashion. It's like a binary star system in which one is bigger than the other. They both influence each other's orbits. I'm being driven by dog food at this point. I'd rather get something that is usable sooner. The argument against doing that is it risks releasing something that's not all that interesting at a particular point in time. But that criticism is outweighed by half a loaf is better than none. They begin reviewing the list of potential Canoga features that Lamb has wrangled into Excel. It's full of major projects that the developers haven't even begun to tackle. Things like importing and exporting data from Chandler and printing and versioning, keeping track of changes that users make so that they can undo them. As they consider each additional topic, the energy seems to sap out of the room. When I got here, I immediately identified sharing as an iceberg because it was an area I was really familiar with, Dussault says. There are other areas where I'm not familiar enough to know whether there's another iceberg under the water. Couldn't you do a best-case no-iceberg schedule, Kapor asks? Even then, building a full set of features into Chandler is going to take time, Dussault answers. There's only so much you can do to accelerate things, and if you hire too many new programmers, Brooke's Law will kick in. 
That's true, Kapor admits. It's the old, it takes nine months to make a baby no matter what principle. I think Canoga is one or two years from now, Dussault says. At least. Kapor lets out a long, slow sigh. What informs that? The number of things that scare me, and things that I know aren't hard but are just a lot of slogging. I'm comparing it to how fuzzy the features felt on Exchange Server when it was two years before shipping, and then how many features they cut. And that's just Kanoga, Kapor says. He blows air through his lips like a long, silent whistle, closes his eyes, and clasps his hands to his mouth. There's a long silence. He makes a half-hearted effort to challenge Dussault's logic. It's hard to compare what the rate of progress is going to be. We have new people just starting out now who are working on solving email and the WebDAV piece to start with. The character of the work changes after 0.4. But I also have Katie's team's plan for the next four months, replies Dussault. All the preferences dialogues and the printing dialogues, they take time. You just have to slog through them. Kapor gives up and moves on. The next question is, when do we have the usable dog food release? Dog food starts really small with a couple of dedicated people. My hunch would be another six months of solid work if we really focused on dog food. I'm sure it would involve a bunch of painful decisions. Another six months after 0.4? Dussault asks with a look that says respectfully, I don't think so. Yeah, what can we say by September for the CSG meeting about what's dog foodable by next May? Dussault gazes out the window, out across Howard Street. When people ask for numbers that far out, the traditional thing that engineers do is make them up. In meetings like this one, I usually sit off to the side, unobtrusively taking notes. But now Kapor turns to me and jokes, Scott is naming this chapter, Realism Sets In. I nod and smile and think it's software time all over again. And now a conversation with Scott Rosenberg. Scott Rosenberg is the co-founder of Salon.com. His first book is Dreaming in Code. Welcome to the program, Scott. Thanks. Scott, this is a really fascinating book. I'd like you to describe to us how you got into this book in the beginning. What drew you to this subject? It was driven by my own pain at the difficulty of creating software. Uh, Very personal, but I think common experience I had at Salon.com where I was managing editor. And we, at the height of the uh, dot-com bubble, we built our own system for managing the website's content. It's called a content management system. And we really didn't know a lot about building software. We were a group of journalists who had the luck and success and who, who had had this experience of building a successful website without really any technology and gradually realized, oh, you know, there actually is some technology involved in trying to run a website and we better do something about that. And so we built this system and it took way longer than anyone had thought it would take. It was a complete disaster when we launched it, when we went live with it. Salon actually ceased publishing for about Oh, good 24 hours. When, I mean, we had some downtime over a weekend that we, you know, was planned. And then instead of publishing our Monday morning edition Monday morning, it took us about 12 or 16 hours after that. It was a big train wreck. And we eventually cleaned it up. But I started wondering, you know, what, what, what was I ignorant of? What, what, what did I need to learn to avoid having, how could this have happened? It was unthinkable to me. And I started reading. That's what I do when I, you know, when I want to learn something, I figure other people have figured stuff out that I don't know. I will go study at their feet. So I started reading books. The first book I picked up was Frederick Brooks's The Mythical Man Month. And he was a programming manager at IBM in the 1960s. He wrote his book after experiencing his own software disaster, creating the operating system for the IBM System 360, which was the leading computer system of its era. And I started reading this book and sort of had this revelation that the problems Salon in its small way had experienced were really much more common. 
and to this day uh, unsolved. Sure, there were things we could have done better and we, things we should have known, and we were ignorant to a certain extent, but the problem was much bigger than that. And as I dug deeper into this, I began feeling that there was great material here. I had spent a lot of time working with programmers. I am not a programmer myself. Uh, since my high school days of writing game programs in BASIC, I haven't really, haven't kept up since then, let's just say. But I understand the technology enough to be able to talk to programmers and understand something about what they go through. And I had gotten to know enough of them that I felt that their experience deserved to be presented by a writer who could take it and make it intelligible to people outside their world. Now, tell us a little bit about this project that you uh, reported on. It's the creation of a piece of software that's not even yet done. Uh, last I saw, I actually downloaded version alpha 0.7 from the builds page that you pointed to in the oh, book. A brave soul. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's crashed many a time in my experience, short and brief though it is. So tell us a little bit about what this project is, who created it, who's, who started this whole thing. Yeah. Chandler is the brainchild of Mitch Capor, and who people who followed the computer industry for any length of time know his name primarily as the founder of Lotus in the 1980s. He created the program Lotus 123, which was sort of the uh, original killer app for the IBM PC. Uh, and he made an enormous amount of money doing this. And he, so that was all 20 years ago. He left Lotus. And before he did, he created another program called Lotus Agenda, which was back in the days of DOS and the IBM PC, before Windows, before a graphic interface, any of that. It was very crude in that sense, but it did some really wonderful things with personal information. It was, called, it was the first program to use the label Personal Information Manager, and the idea was this program could store all the random information in your life. You could put almost anything in it, lists, to-do lists, research notes, meeting notes, anything that you want. And you could organize it within the program in such a way that you could find stuff incredibly easily in the future. You could mix and match it. If you think of the flexibility of a spreadsheet, which is what Mitch Kapor had created in Lotus 123, and think about applying that in a somewhat different way to all the stuff that you need to keep track of in your life. That's what Lotus Agenda was. And there's never been a program quite as successful at doing that in all the years since, despite the success of Microsoft Outlook and some you know, other popular programs, they're all much more rigid than Lotus Agenda. So Kapor decided that he wanted to create a new program that sort of captured, it wasn't a carbon copy of Lotus Agenda, but captured that spirit, that sense of flexibility and notion of a program that actually works the you know the way you want it to work and not the way so that you don't have to you know uh, adjust yourself to the demands of the machine the machine will will uh, adapt to you and it's a it's a noble and i think worthy goal and that captured my imagination when Mitch announced this in uh, the fall of 2002 i was beginning to work on what would this book i wanted to write be and i thought this project would be a great case study. At the time, I was thinking I would do a half dozen case studies, but that was insane. That was far more than I could uh, uh, absorb or than I could expect a reader to absorb. And Chandler, which was what Mitch's project came to be known as, turned out to really give me more than enough material. Sort of all the questions I wanted to explore about the difficulty of software were, were exposed and all, all, the, all those questions about why things take so long and why it's so difficult to uh, eliminate bugs and why it's so difficult to just get a software project moving, they were all uh, exemplified in, in the story that I began to follow. In a sense, it seems like your original scale of the project was matched some of the the way that software projects often overreach. At the beginning of many software projects, there is this um, this expansive vista, this notion that, well, it's a blank slate, and 
in our previous projects, we, the programmers, have often been very frustrated by this problem and that problem, and now we're starting afresh and we can solve all of our problems at once. It's the same thing that Microsoft went through with the development of the Vista operating system. They spent two years doing that and then threw all their work out and basically started over again, which is why the whole thing took four and a half years instead of the originally planned two years. For my book, the good news is that I was actually able, as, a, as one person rather than a group of people, and as someone working with the relatively pliable medium of the English language, and as a writer who'd been writing for 25 years, I, I was able to change course very early on. I could say, six projects, forget it. You know, one, one is enough. Speaking of Microsoft, it was actually in part uh, KPOR's experience with the Exchange server and Outlook itself that inspired the creation of Chandler, wasn't it? Yes. Outlook and Exchange together are the standard that many companies uh, use for managing email and calendar and all that stuff. And they are difficult programs to set up. They're costly because they're Microsoft products, you have to pay Microsoft. And Kapor set out with some very idealistic goals. He, he was going to produce a system that didn't use a server at all. This was in 2002 when he started, was just after the whole Napster saga and this concept of peer-to-peer -peer software, software that where your program talks to someone else's program without having any other computer between them kind of mediating the exchange. That was in the air. And he also, Caper uh, also was committed to the idea of producing an open source product, one that uh, users could get for free and where the code was open, anyone could improve and extend the, the program without having to sort of wait for the proprietary company like Microsoft to make a change. And so all of that was in the air and, and Kapor kind of packed all of that into his set of goals and ambitions for his project. Well, Kapor also co-founded the EFF, didn't he? The Electronic Frontier he, Foundation. He is one of the great idealists of the software industry. I think if you look at his entire career, he has always sort of embraced the, you know, what, you know, Google's motto is don't be evil, but that's sort of Mitch Kapor's. It's, it's, it's not his motto. It's, it's really what he's done, I think, all his career. And I admire that a lot. You know, he was a, a lesser known part of his uh, biography is that he was one of the key figures in the early 90s in nudging the internet out of the world of the university only nonprofit only uh, and and kind of the early evolution of the internet towards a commercial and an open commercial network Mitch played a, a big part in, in a lot of that and he made some investments uh, as well at the time and made money from them you know that was it wasn't it wasn't purely selfless and idealistic but it was at the time you know when AOL and uh, prodigy and CompuServe were the models of online services it took enormous forethought and I think idealism to say no this geeky strange environment called the internet that at the time was much harder to use, that's the future. So that's the kind of thing that, that he's always done. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the open source movement and how Linus Torvalds, the uh, creator of Linux, used it to create a sort of artificial intelligence environment out of millions of volunteers. Yeah. It's in a way, I mean, it's calling it artificial intelligence is a little bit of an inversion because it's all human intelligence, right? It's human intelligence that's been made more efficient by the application of great communications technology like the internet. I mean, open source is one of those things that came along uh, it really, you know, I mean, Linux is now, what, close to 15, 15 16, 17 years old. Um, it, it arose simultaneously with the rise of the commercial Internet as we know it. And it, it, it really was, you know, if you look back at, at the history, we started covering it in the late 90s at Salon. We ran some of the first sort of in-depth chronicles of the rise of, of the movement. It was something that was completely dismissed by the, the dominant software industry of the time. It was basically seen as uh, a bunch of crazy 
uh, non-communicative programmers who are off in their world doing their own thing that could never be of use to business because it had this licensing scheme that made it that, that made it hard for businesses to make money from it basically was was the was the argument the the model was bill gates the model was bill gates as uh, you know i mean this goes back all the way to the 1970s bill gates wrote a famous letter to the homebrew computing club in silicon valley said you guys are stealing software you're you're giving it away to each other and you're stealing other companies software you should be paying for it and indeed, you know, he was right in, in the sense that when he said you should be paying for it, well, he managed to get uh, uh, large numbers of people to pay for it and created his fortune. It's, it's, it's a conflict that has been at the heart of the software field for decades. And it's really only – there was only this period of about 10 or 15 years from the rise of sort of the Microsoft era that people thought that proprietary software was sort of the natural only way for it to be done. Tell us a little bit about how you personally managed to contact Mitch Kapoor and get yourself in on this project. Well, I had been the, you know, one of the founders and the technology editor at Salon, uh, and then I became managing editor. I had been covering technology for, you know, a decade or so by the time I decided to start working on this book. I had never met Mitch Kapoor, but, you know, it's easy enough to get people's email address I got his email address. I sent him an email and said, I'm interested in doing this book. Here's my idea. I assured him that my goal was to explore the questions that I wanted to explore about why software is so difficult. And I think that connected with his own frustration over the years. He immediately told me that he thought it was a good idea for a book but that he thought Chandler was atypical. It was not a typical software project, so maybe it wouldn't be appropriate. And I said, no, the fact that it's atypical is part of the, the uh, interest for me. And I was lucky enough as a, a veteran journalist by this point uh, that I'm sure that Capor went and asked uh, people that he did know in the technology press, you know, who is this guy and is he trustworthy? And I think the answers he got back were positive. So I'm sure that helped me too. How did you start divvying up your time to attend meetings? And how, how did you get yourself into the, the mm -hmm. OSF? At the beginning, when I started observing the work at OSAF, it was really a small operation. I mean, it was, it's always been, it's, it's not a huge operation even today, but at the time there were really only about a half dozen people involved. And I started going down to, it was in uh, Belmont. They had subleased some office space. And I started going down just once a month. And so it wasn't really hard. I was still full-time at Salon at that point. It wasn't, uh, you know, that difficult for me to do that. And as the project grew to more like, at this point, probably two dozen people, and as the complexity of the project grew and as the number of sort of different roads that different people were going down multiplied, it started taking up more and more time. And that was the point at which I realized, oh, if I'm going to do this book, I need to get serious. I need to write a proposal, get an advance, take time off from Salon and do it right. And so you wrote the proposal and it was accepted. How did you shop this around? As a, as a writer, you're sitting here. You're, the publishing environment is very friendly to, to nonfiction these days, isn't it? Very friendly? Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I guess I don't really have a, a, I don't have a context in which to, to assess that a longer term. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I, my my experiences with my one project, so I, it's, hard, it's hard for me to say. Tell us a little bit about the, the OSAF. Tell us about how they were formed and some of the talent that, was, uh, yeah. that came in because it's a really fascinating group of people who came together for yeah, this when, project. When Kapor started working on Chandler, he pulled together, you know, he hired a couple of programmers and they started exploring some ideas. And then when he announced it, uh, something really interesting happened. When it went public, which was in like the, towards the end of 2002, don't forget this was a time, this was at the bottom of the downturn after the dot-com uh, bubble burst. This was a period when there were a lot of people in technology and particularly programmers who were sort of not currently employed <laughs> and but looking for interesting projects. And several... 
several sort of high-profile people stepped forward and started um, volunteering for the project. Since it was an open-source thing, uh, it seemed like you know something that would be able to draw on both paid employees and volunteers. One of the people who stepped forward very early is a guy named Andy Hertzfeld, who was one of the original programmers on the Macintosh when the Macintosh was first developed at Apple in the early 80s. Uh, and he's sort of a legend in, in the programming world uh, and a very, you know, usability-oriented kind of programmer, which is unusual. It's not, that isn't something that, that programmers are known for focusing on. Uh, another guy who who came forward was one of the one of the early people at Netscape, a guy named Lou Montali, who's probably most famous as the uh, guy who, as a as a young programmer at Netscape, invented the cookie, which is the little file that your web browser stores information from different websites on, so that an advertiser will will know that oh, you've seen this ad, now we're going to show you a different ad. And people are often very suspicious of cookies; they think they're evil. They're really not. I guess that's a that's a tangent we don't have to go into here. But uh, so Lou Montali stepped forward, and uh, there were several other volunteers. There were so there were a group of volunteers, a group of employees, and all of these people fired up by this vision that Mitch Capor had of really doing uh, a personal information manager right and and giving people a tool that would help them organize email and calendars as well as all that random information that Lotus Agenda had uh, uh, helped you organize. Something that would do all of that and, and do more because they also had ideas about agents, little autonomous sort of things running inside the program that would do things for you without you even having to click on something. They also had ideas about Building a, building the program out as a platform that would be very easy for programmers to ex, other programmers to extend, so that you could take Chandler and easily plug in your photo organizing application. So you could use Chandler to organize your photos too. There were all of these grand ambitions at the beginning. Lots of ideas, but then when it came time to start getting them down and moving forward. It didn't exactly work out the way everybody expected, did it? Well, it's funny. There, There is, all, you know, there's always, with hindsight, you can look at any project, and I can look at the, the project of my book in the similar light and say, ah, you know, if, if I had known then what I know now, uh, I would have made different choices. And certainly, Mitch Capor and everyone else at OSAF, if you talk to them today, they will scratch their heads and roll their eyes and, and admit and say, you know, we, we, we wasted some time. We made some choices early on. We, we did these things that ended up losing a lot of time. And it's, it's been interesting as the, you know, the book's been out a few months now and I'm getting lots of comments and feedback from programmers who've read it. People just write their reviews uh, uh, on their personal blogs or send me email. And one Frequent response is, you know, how could they do this? Didn't you know? It's so obvious that they should have started with a much narrower, much more specific goal and achieved it. And if you talk to them, uh, the the folks at OSAF at the time, they would have said, "We understand that," but there are some unique traits about what we're doing. There are some unique characteristics. There are just reasons that we can't, we know this is wisdom, but we can't follow it right now. And my experience is that a lot of the programmers who are saying, oh, you know, that was dumb. I'd never do that. If you actually sit down and talk to them, if you have enough time to sort of hear their stories and talk to them about what they've been through or what they're doing right now, and you discover that the, the great majority of them will also say, ah, but right now, yeah, we're we're six months behind schedule in what we're doing because, yeah, we knew that we should we should have been really narrow in our focus and worked incrementally and all those good, wise um, injunctions. But we there was something special about our project. I call you know it's it's this it's this exceptionalism that is pervasive in in programming projects. There's always a reason that you can't do it the quote-unquote right way. One of the things that's often said about programming or questions that people ask is, and you discuss this extensively in the book, is why can't we build software the way we build bridges? That question does come up constantly. I actually, I don't, I've never asked it myself. I have 
witnessed and observed people, you know, I, I sort of describe this sort of exemplary or, or archetypal figure in the book, the person who's, who pounds the table. Because it's, you say, you not only say, you know, why can't we build software the way we build bridges? You pound the table while you're saying it because it's a cry of outrage. It's like, we should be able to do this and we can't. What's the problem? And I, I, I'd like to think that the entirety of Dreaming in Code is sort of a response to that, a way of showing the many reasons why, in fact, we can't build bridges, uh, build software the way we build bridges. And then, and then there's also this sort of parallel thing going on where, well, do we even build bridges the way we think we build bridges? Because I live in Berkeley and I cross the Bay Bridge uh, constantly. And during the course of my writing this book, the Bay Bridge, the new Bay Bridge, half of which was already built, was redesigned in mid-course, and they stopped working on it for something like six months or nine months. So, you know, the, the bridges have their problems, too. <laughs> you talk about something that I find really interesting, which is that the idea of software engineering, software writing as engineering, is not, wasn't originally accepted it quite as easily it's, as we do today. Yeah, the origin of the term software engineering is fascinating because it goes back to the 1960s. There was this period which at the time was called the software crisis. In the late 60s, the the wise people in the computer industry of the time sort of realized that software was not progressing at the rate it needed to to take advantage of the computer hardware of the time. This is a crisis that has now lasted several decades, but at the time, it was a new thing. And they gathered in Germany at a remote ski resort, and they, some of the, you know, the smartest, the, the, the grandest and smartest minds of the era said, what do we need to do? And there was a faction that prevailed that that proposed more as an aspiration than as a uh, reality that software be approached as a kind of engineering. And at the time, it was really, it was a sort of prov provocation to the people in the field to say, hey, we need to think about this. How can we make writing software more like engineering? What are the steps we need to take? But somehow, over the next several years, the phrase software engineering got completely absorbed into the field, and that is how people began to refer to it, and people began to call themselves software engineers. All of that kind of happened without the actual development of anything that would let us think of software as remotely uh, like other forms of engineering. And there have been some, there have, has been some progress made in some areas in the, you know, 30, 40 years since. It's not like it's been a, a complete wash, but I think to this day, it, software engineering remains a term of aspiration. For a regular engineering, when you build a bridge, you can refer back to the laws of physics to figure out if it's going to work or not. There's no equivalent laws of physics for software to tell if it's going to work, is there? That's right. And part of that is rooted in what, for me, is one of the most fascinating aspects of, of this whole subject, which is that software is entirely a product of the human imagination. There are, I suppose, if you go down deep enough into the math, there is there are certain aspects of computer science that are truly scientific and that are mathematical in, in their you know, levels of certainty but uh, and uncertainty. But the stuff that we build, the practical creation of software applications, happens through the accretion of these layers of things that, you know, from the operating system on up through all these different levels of software, all of which are the products of the human imagination and, in a sense, arbitrary. They don't have to be that way. The one that I always fall back on and, and realize the, the kind of proved it to me, it's this notion that people in some computer uh, studies courses are sort of taught about the file system, the, you know, the system by which our computer stores files as an immutable thing. This is a, one of the basis, bases of the field. And in fact, there's no particular reason for that. It's a custom, right? It's something that has 
the, the earliest computers had this and all the computers we've built since then have, have had it. It doesn't have to be that way. Bridges, if they bear a certain load and they're not built to support that load, they will fall. That's going to be the case as long as you're building a bridge on planet Earth. That's not going to change. But your computer doesn't have to have a file system. It could have a completely different way of storing information. And so because all of this stuff is so arbitrary, there's no particular reason that it has to be one way and not another. And you know, if you're building something that has to work today, you're going to build it to work with the technologies that exist today. But the people who are con who are trying to innovate and trying to create new stuff are often going to think, well, how far down can I dig up what's there and rethink it? And the deeper you dig down, the more innovations you can introduce, but the harder it is to get finish to finish anything. Exactly. One of the things that you point out I thought was really interesting about the software industry is that the way software is taught, you don't go – it's not like literature where you go back and look at the great works and say, here's what's been done before. This is the great stuff. Read this and understand it and then maybe go and write something about it. Software isn't taught that way, is Yeah. It? There's a guy named Richard Gabriel who I uh, quote who, who talks about this. He's a computer programmer who went back – to a creative writing program. Um, he was uh, wanted to be a poet, and he, he got a degree, an advanced degree in creative writing, and he came out of it and said, you know, what I did in this program was far more rigorous than anything I ever had to do in studying programming in terms of the constant peer review of his work, in terms of the output that was expected of him. It's, it's not kind of what you would normally think of in comparing poetry to uh, something as apparently uh, demanding and rigorous as, as uh, software creation. When they first started to build Chandler, they had to make some real basic decisions about what they were going to do. And one of the things they had to decide about was the database they were going to do. And it caused them a lot of grief. Tell us a little bit about this pouring the foundation for software. Yeah, this is, you know, there, there's this kind of attitude that people have, understandably, with software that because it is so abstract and it is so mutable, it's so easy to change. You just change some text on as in your program and you've changed the program that, you know, you can always change things as you need to. But in fact, decisions that teams make early on in projects, particularly decisions about what kinds of tools to use and what kinds of systems to build on, those decisions are really, in a way, like pouring concrete. So at the beginning of Chandler, uh, the idea was they were going to build a product that let you use data in certain very flexible ways. If you were going to do that using a traditional kind of database, it might not work. There were some more uh, uh, things called object databases. It's a slightly different kind of way of storing information that they wanted to use. They looked at some available options, but they ended up, as so many software projects do, choosing to build something themselves. This is kind of a uh, a theme that recurs, I think, throughout the, the history of software that programmers, given a choice between using something that someone else has already written and building something themselves, will often prefer to do the latter. I've had a certain amount of negative reaction in, in discussion by programmers uh, from my statement of that in, in the past. Programmers have said, you know, I don't believe that. You know, it's it, programmers don't like to 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 waste their time. If somebody's already done it, you know, of course I would I would use what what they've already done. But my experience in observing and in participating in projects and in looking at the history is that in practice, a programmer knows that he's going to be expected to maintain a piece of software, to fix it when it's broken, and if that's the case, he would rather do it himself, then at least he can, you know, take responsibility for the failures, but he'll know where problems are. And that is the, you know, I think still think that's the reality that people, and it's, it's natural too. People become programmers, presumably in most cases, because they actually enjoy writing code. It's a creative act for them. And so there, there, it's like sort of telling a writer, uh, would you rather write your own book or or, or do do a, a collection of pieces that other people have written? You know, 
One thing that's really interesting about the way your book is structured, the, the way you we read it, is that you talk about um, a lot of the history of software and show us um, some of these laws. The Frederick uh, Brooks has a particularly uh, a law that's really applicable, I think, not just to software, which is adding manpower to a late software project makes it later. And then you go, and what's great about this book is then you just we just see it. You just lay us out, lay it out, and watch it happen. You don't even tell us it's happening. The reader just gets to draw the, their own conclusion. Tell us a little bit about that Brooks Law. Yeah, well, Brooks Law is one of these great counterintuitive principles that, you know, first you hear it and you go, huh, how can that be? And then you think about it, and you if you read a little more, you discover what Brooks is talking about is the idea that when you add people to a project, assuming that it's a project where there's a certain amount of communication that's involved between the people doing it. It's a creative project. In other words, it's not people at a call center answering customer support calls or something like that. It's a creative project. The people need to talk to each other. When you add new people, the people who are currently working have to stop what they're doing and bring the new people up to speed. The new people have to take some time to understand the work that's already been done. Um, dividing up the work, takes you have the work has to be redivided because you have more people now. That takes time. And before you know it, you're further behind. Um, and so, you know, you can kind of grasp that then. You, you, you kind of get your head around that and you realize that. But there's still, even once you understand that, I think an, a completely uh, understandable human tendency to just reject it because it seems not to make sense. It's like, surely if we have more people, we can do more. And so in, you know, in one passage in the book, Mitch Capor quotes this, you know, it still takes nine months to make a baby argument um, or principle, I should say. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a, a helpful alternative way of seeing this stuff. If it's a creative project, there are things that take time. You can't rush them necessarily. You can't necessarily throw people at them. Throwing people at them can, in fact, you know, sometimes make things worse. And I'm glad that you said that about, you know, not uh, my not pointing it out too heavily to the reader, but just letting the story display it, because uh, that was certainly what I was trying to do. It's, it's the kind of thing that uh, people sometimes really want their messages uh, and lessons underscored very heavily, particularly in the technology field. People are looking to books for answers. They want, you know, if, if ideally they wouldn't want to read a book at all. They would want a few bullet points that would tell you this is what you need to do. This is the secret. Now go out there and do it. And that was just not the kind of book that I wanted to write or that I thought would be helpful. I spent years as a theater critic before I wound up writing about technology. And one of my goals as a critic was always to tell enough about what a playwright was trying to do, what a production was trying to accomplish, uh, before I stepped in and said what I thought about it, that if the reader was going to—the the reader might completely disagree with my judgment, but would still come away with some um, basis for reaching his or her own judgment. And similarly, I'm, I'm pleased at this point with, with Dreaming in Code at how many different reactions I get from people, some people who think that I'm really um, very harsh on the people I'm writing about and I'm exposing all of this, these horrible things that you know, they should have known better than doing, and other people who tell me, oh, it's actually this very humane um, and, and sympathetic portrait of smart people struggling with some very difficult problems. And it, it, it feels right to me that, that uh, I was able to tell a story and people are able to sort of draw their own conclusions that way. It, it, one thing I really like about this book is it is a book. It is a story. It's not a manual. And I think you, you've crossed that line very well. You make it clear. And it's more enjoyable for being that and more instructive, I think, than a manual to, to, to see that experience happen. Well, that, yeah, thanks. That was certainly something that I, I was aiming for. And, you know, the book is also this sort of a little bit of a hybrid. It's got the narrative that is the core of it, but it also has frequent digressions into the history of the field and different ideas of different thinkers in software, people who have some more uh, revolutionary ideas about how things should be changed and all of that. And sometimes... Uh, some, some readers seem to feel that uh, they wanted more of that and less of the story. Other readers say, you know, uh, gee, couldn't you, you know, couldn't you just stick to the story? Why are there all these digressions? And I was really thinking about um, 
some of the the kind of the epics that I grew up loving um, uh, or encyclopedic novels. You know, one one reader came back to me and said, you know, in a weird way, your book is like Moby Dick. And I thought, you know, that's it's like a weird comparison to think of. But I understood what he meant, that in Moby Dick, there are these chapters where he's just Melville just stops telling the story and starts telling you about whales. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a wonderful thing to have one's book compared to that. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, something that I think I, I've always enjoyed uh, a book that told the story and let me gave me a window onto a whole field that I knew nothing about. Tell us a little bit as a writer how you organize these different parts of this book, because there are lots of uh, really interesting explorations of the history of software. And then you've got these uh, fly on the wall bits. And I'm wondering how, as a writer, when you're assembling this book, did you write these separately? Did you write it in yeah. in sequence? Uh, there's sort of two answers to that. And one is that I am I've been writing for 25 years, though this is my first book. Uh, I've been you know written for weekly newspapers and daily newspapers and websites, and I've been writing constantly uh, since I was age you know 15 or 16. And I have the ability to hold. Uh, the thread of a piece of prose in my head. I kind of start writing and I kind of know where I want to end up and I know how far I've come and how far I need to go. And uh, I write in a remarkably linear way. It's This book was largely written from start to finish. Um, wow. And uh, that is, you know, I, if I have a gift, that's, that is my gift, I think. And I've always written that way. That helped me when, in those years when I had to write theater reviews between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. as overnight critic uh, for the San Francisco Examiner. You know, I was able to kind of know, okay, I know where I'm heading. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down and write. And, and uh, that, that is something uh, I think I'm good at. The other thing, though, is that there was this huge quantity of information that I had to organize. And I used this program called Echo, which is ironically is a uh, uh, now orphaned, you know, it's, you can't buy it anymore. It doesn't, it's, it's kind of ancient uh, program that was a, a sort of a cousin of Lotus Agenda. It was another one of these freeform data managers. It runs in Windows, not in DOS, so it's a little bit more up to date. And I have always used that program as my little personal information manager. I used it here. The only other thing I did was I took a page from the team at OSAF. At one point in the story, uh, frustrated by how difficult it is to plot their schedule, to, to estimate their schedule, they uh, started using a system of sticky notes, of post-it notes. Um, and they would put them up on a whiteboard and use, you know, each post-it note represented a certain amount, a amount of time a particular project would take. And it was a kind of a amusingly low-tech but surprisingly effective way of, of planning their project. And at a certain point in my book, uh, sort of uh, my, the long march of writing my book, I thought, well, why don't I do that too? And I went out and bought a big piece of foam core, you know, white kind of uh, cardboard and a bunch of stickies, and I started trying to organize it myself that way. And that helped me get over a rough patch. I used it for about a week, and then I felt, you know, I, I didn't really need it anymore, and I realized that I was procrastinating by organizing the sticky notes instead of actually writing. One thing that this book has a lot of, it, and the computer biz in general has a lot of, is humor. Um, you talk about um, naming the server at Salon Kafka. Maybe not the best choice you were thinking when, when you had a Kafka-esque you know, Kafka was still running until very recently. It was only a few weeks ago that we finally decommissioned it. There's some really great phrases in here, too. Um, one thing that uh, programmers get to that you you call yak shaving. What is yak shaving? Ah, yak shaving. So one of the great things about writing a, this book today rather than 10, 20 years ago is that the web provides this vast um, uh treasure chest of this kind of stuff. Programmers themselves are writing about all of this. And yak shaving is something that I found this, this wonderful discussions of on different people's blogs. In fact, I think it was um, James Gosling, who is the creator of Java at Sun, wrote about it. And yak shaving is the idea that um, you are – there are certain tasks that you must perform before you can do the task that you set out to perform. Um, 
and uh, the the origin of the term comes. You know, it's a, there's a a, a a shaggy dog or a shaggy yak um, a, a tail that you know. Before you do this, you have to do that, and before you do that, you have to shave the yak, and so it it, it got its name. Now there is a difference between. Oh, I'm trying to remember. I'm blanking. What there there are there's yak shaving and there's axe sharpening. Axe sharpening. Thank you. Um, and and there is a subtle difference between them. And in fact, it was axe sharpening that that James Gosling wrote, wrote about, not yak shaving. Yak shaving. When you, the the things that are called yak shaving are things that you actually must do if you're going to complete your project. You actually have to do them. Axe sharpening is something that is optional. If you think about it, um, axe sharpening is more the notion that well, you're going to spend a certain amount of time preparing your tools before you commence a project. If you have to chop down a tree, you have to sharpen the axe first. And some degree of axe sharpening is clearly valuable, but knowing the optimal point at which to stop sharpening the axe because there's a point of diminishing returns, that's difficult. And programmers are occupationally prone to Act sharpening ad infinitum. They will. They love to tinker with their tools to get their programming environment just right to to make everything perfect before they actually start uh, writing code. And of course, writers are familiar with this too. It's the whole phenomenon of you know sharpening pencils or getting just the right ink. If you were someone in the old days or today, it might be you know getting the window just the right size and the lighting on your monitor just right and all the things that we do to procrastinate. And this gets back to something else that Frederick Books talked about, which was the hard thing about building software is deciding what to say and not how to say it. And this is something that really uh, uh, hammered the, the Chandler people, didn't it? It's it's a principle. Certainly, it's a it's a particularly important principle for people creating software. But it is one that is uh, holds true in all creative acts. Right? It's anytime you. Uh, set out to do something, if you are unclear on what you're trying to accomplish, if you don't know what you want to do, if your goals are fuzzy, if your inspiration is dim, all of these things that can afflict you at the beginning will, will be a problem. And there's always a tension between Knowing that and feeling, well, I really do need to figure out what my goal is. I need to figure out what I'm going to do before I start because if I don't, I'm in trouble. And that's true. Yet there's a tension between that and the knowledge that, you know, the, the old uh, uh, truism, you know, the journey of a thousand uh, miles begins with a single step. That if you are need to create something, it's best to start and get a little knowledge and a little information so that you can build on that and get somewhere faster than simply uh, spinning your wheels forever trying to figure out what it is you're trying to do. So the, the, there's no... Uh, you know, there's uh, Frederick Brooks, who who we're talking about. He wrote another essay called "No Silver Bullet," and it was his sort of grand statement of why there would be no mass, you know, no single magical transformative innovation that would magically make software easier to create. Uh, and similarly, I think there's there's no silver bullet for uh, uh, resolving this tension between. Clarity of purpose and and designing things before you dive into them and all of that, and the the need to get started and learn. One of the things that that's uh, fascinating about this book is how much, even though it talks about technology and it's all about software, uh, as a reader, I couldn't help but think of everything but technology as I read it. When I came across Brooke's Law about adding more men to doesn't make anything come in faster, the main thing I was thinking was, wow, that troop surge, maybe not a good idea. Yeah, well, the, you know, I mean, uh, sadly, the the, uh, the the military, you know, uh, sort of the, the, the applications of Brooke's Law to, to military uh, endeavors to uh, all sorts of... Uh, yeah, it it it's it's mind-boggling how um, I think the the it, it, maybe it's an American trait that we think that quantity uh, can solve problems. More of more of anything will make a difference. 
Uh, sadly, in, you know, in Iraq, I think we're we're long, long past the point of that making any difference. I think there are a lot of software projects that think of themselves or describe the people on on them describe them as death marches. This is one of the the phrases in in the field. You know, you're on a death march. It means you're on a project that is doomed no matter what. Uh, there is, you know, the, the the demands that have been placed on the particular people involved cannot be met, and there's this sort of fatalism around that 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 resembles, I think, some of the the stuff you you hear from uh, uh, you know soldiers in the field. And yet, on the other hand, programmers are optimists. They're always optimists. I have almost never, I'm trying to think, the programmers I've worked with, I would describe every single one of them as an optimist, which means that they will always tell you that something can be done if, if you ask them to do it. Yes, it can be done. Uh, they can do it. Uh, it's not that hard. Uh, and I've wondered about this, and my best theory is that it's it's an occupational requirement because, in fact, the work is so daunting and so hard uh, and the, the, the history of defeat is so uh, extensive that you have to be optimistic or you would, you, you know, you, you're going to wind up in a different field. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about Chandler and, and your book in that writing this book for you must... It, has some resemblances to to the Zodiac case. There's no, we don't know who done it, do we? And it ain't done yet, is it? So how did you finish a book about something that was unfinished? Well, it was. So when I started following the work at Chandler, the uh, project was expected to take one year. And I immediately doubled that in my mind. I said, okay, that's two years. What I later learned is that the principle that I should have applied or, or that the, the way the, the, the canonical version of that principle is that you double the estimate and you up the unit of measurement one magnitude so that um, if something is supposed to take one year, it's two decades. Now, I think that's kind of maybe overkill, but two years was far too short. Uh, I was, they were, you know, past the three-year point uh, at the time when I had my manuscript due, and I faced a lot of difficult logistical choices of you know writing time versus time continuing to report the story, um, and ultimately, the choice I made was not so much based on uh, the deadline because my publisher would have moved the deadline if I you know had asked, uh, and it wasn't so much based on um, you know. Uh, the advance running out or, you know, a, a personal frustration or any any of the circumstantial things. It was more based on my sense that I had learned as much as I was going to learn about trying to answer the questions I had set out with in the book about why it's so hard to do this stuff. Um, and I, there was a certain amount of point of diminishing returns for me in the time I was spending at the project. Uh, Chandler had found a rhythm of how to develop uh, software. It's a slow rhythm, but it's their their process is functioning much better today, certainly than it did at the beginning. Uh, and there's some stability there. So having reached that point, you know, uh, and having told the story of how they got to that point, there was less uh, uh, to tell. And at the time that I decided to uh, uh, wrap my tale, there was still no real clear endpoint for the Chandler story. There still isn't. And in a way, I realized that is the story. That is the nature of software. It's almost impossible to say ever that a piece of software is done. When is when is a piece of software done? What does that mean? It's usually it's done when people stop using it because as long as they're using it, they're going to continue either to find bugs or to ask for new features. Um, and, you know, certainly... Chandler is, is not, you know, it has a ways to go before you could even think of it as being done. And they have a, another release that is sort of a big deal for them later this year. I think it's slated for uh, late spring or early summer that they're calling uh, their uh, uh, public beta. And it is, the, it is the version of the program that they are intending to say, unlike the version that you downloaded, uh, this is ready for you to use. Uh, it's not perfect. It's not complete with all its features, but we're going to stand behind it and say, give it a try. Uh, and they, they're, you know, certainly much, much closer to that point today than they were when I stopped writing. Uh, but, you know, they're not there yet. Software is never finished, but your book is. 
Well, you know, uh, some people have said to me, well, it, it's, you know, it's not and I should be continuing to tell the Chandler story and be, you know, perhaps extending the book in a blog. And I, I appreciate that, you know, in, in asking for that. People are telling me they liked what they read and they want more. That's great. Um, but for me, as someone who had spent the last 10 years writing online and is very – and I've been blogging since 2002 myself and, you know, I, I have a great love for – the open-endedness of of things online, uh, there was something wonderful about a book uh, as in, in its form, and the fact that a book has an ending, uh, and 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 my book does too. Even though the Chandler story doesn't have an ending, uh, I I think I hope I found a way that is sort of uh, elegantly ties the the nature of the Chandler story into some principles in computer science that uh, uh, maybe help explain. The, the open-endedness or the, uh, uh, you know, the indeterminacy of software. We've been speaking with Scott Rosenberg. His new book is Dreaming in Code. Thank you for joining me, Scott. Thanks so much, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.